Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroh. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today is the second of a two-part series where we're looking at a case where a M&A deal was insured by rep and warranty, this time from the buyer's perspective. Broadtree Partners is a financial buyer which purchased a Colorado-based SaaS company by the name of Red Cat Systems. In this, I'll have Rob Joyce of Broadtree Partners discuss his perspective, and you're going to note that at first he was not too thrilled about going after rep and warranty, but to accommodate the seller, he agreed to move forward with us. And he went through a transition going from being aware of rep and warranty as a concept to becoming a tool that he is going to use on a go-forward basis quite a bit. It's an experience we have all too often here at Rubicon where a majority of our clients are first-time users, even though they may have heard of rep and warranty, they had yet to use it, and their experience changed their opinion dramatically. The other issue I want to highlight here and be aware of is that this is a lower middle market company with a transaction value under $30 million that did not have audited financials, which would have made it ineligible in 2018 to get rep and warranty. However, now with the market the way it is in 2019, not only was a solution available, it came in at a right price and also provided all the same benefits that billion-dollar transactions get to enjoy. So now have a listen and enjoy Rob Joyce. Welcome. I'm here with Rob Joyce, who's a uh, director over at Broadtree Partners. Rob, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick. Now, tell us about Broadtree Partners, and then we'll get into context of how you came to this point in your career. But give us a, a profile on Broadtree. Yeah, so Broadtree Partners is a lower middle market private equity fund, and, and maybe a good way to think about them is they are what, what I'll refer to as a search fund incubator. And um, what that means is as opposed to necessarily looking um, and acting like a search fund, they act as a private equity fund in almost all aspects with kind of one unique focus which is at Broadtree, many of the executives are operating partners, and the intention is for these operating partners uh, to be deployed in the businesses uh, after acquisition. And what that means is Broadtree's focus is not only deploying dollars um, into new businesses to make acquisitions, but also deploying people. Um, and we view that as part of the way that, that will help growth inside the acquired portfolio companies. I think that's a real important differentiator from other investors out there who are blindly you know, contributing capital and maybe a little advice here and there, but you've got operating partners that have seen businesses through the entire life cycle from established growth into the next transition and, and beyond. And I think that kind of knowledge and experience is sorely lacking, particularly from owners and founders who have only had one life cycle they're dealing with, and that's just the one they have. So, so that's a great additional feature you guys are bringing. I think it's something that is a real value add in the lower middle market is I think one of the things the companies need to grow here, not just as capital, but oftentimes from a resource constraint in terms of personnel, these companies are, are resource constrained. 
and it is difficult uh, and expensive to hire executives that can make a difference in your team. And for a lot of people, especially if you haven't done it, this can be something that's a, a pretty scary thing to do. And I think this is a, a great way to make a large impact in these businesses is not only to deploy capital, but to deploy resources as well and full-time dedicated resources whose objective is to grow the business. Give us some context on you. How did you come to Broadtree? What, how did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, so a little bit of background on myself is for a number of years, I did um, M&A, mainly focused on doing integrations with a little bit of carve-out work. Um, I did that for about eight years, and then after that, uh, I transitioned um, and I you know, went back to business school and had some experience in both private equity and venture capital. And what led me to RedCat was um, I knew I wanted to stick in primary investing. And one of the things to me that was important was as opposed to just deploying dollars, which is you know what we talked about a, a second ago, what I was really looking to do was also uh, individually to be able to build something and to be someone who was helping uh, to actually dictate the change and create the change and create growth as opposed to just deploying and stewarding um, dollars or you know investments. Um, and Redcat, or sorry, and uh, Broadtree, you know, offered me that ability. And where you and I came in, came into the picture together was when Broadtree and you were pursuing um, the acquisition of Redcat, which is a SaaS company based in Colorado. Uh, what led you to that particular investment? What, what was it about RedCat that attracted you? Yeah, so um, outside of you know, any sort of investment thesis um, that existed in the area, uh, specifically about RedCat, what was so interesting was the work that the existing management team, which consists of the two co-founders, um, had managed to build for this company um, over kind of its, its fairly long life. Um, and the kind of proof was in the pudding and the really impressive customer base uh, that the company had, as well as the fact that they were really filling a hole that seemed to exist in the marketplace. Um, but, but a lot of it was really a combination of the product as well as uh, the people who were going to be part of the team. That's really what made the difference. So if you can walk me through the process, just, just overview real quick. You meet with them. There are synergies. There's a connection. You decide to move forward. You sign the letter of intent. How did the process go for you from that date? How long of a time are we talking about? And then just, you know, it's a, it's not a, it's a lower middle market company. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be quick and there's not a lot to look at. Yes, yeah, so this this process um, it was certainly not quick. I would say this is on the longer end. Uh, if not on the far end of long for these processes um, for a lower middle market company in terms of time. So uh, there was diligence um, that obviously needed to be performed. You know, small businesses um, and companies in the lower middle market in general um, so sometimes can be more difficult. Um, to your point, uh, you know, sometimes they're easy because there's not a whole lot to look at, but sometimes they can be difficult because they also don't necessarily hold their data or information or are in uh, ways you're used to looking at for larger companies. Um, and part of it is uh, either lack of sophistication or lack of resources to do it. Um, and ultimately lack of resources can also play 
a real role in how long diligence takes. Um, you know, if your company has hired, uh, if your target rather has hired, you know, an investment banker or has an advisor who is actively pushing it into a sale or pushing it into an auction process, um, that'll be more well-defined. Now, if, if you are um, a company that is not, in the, if you're looking at a company that's not in the middle of a process, um, this may or may not take longer. And, and with RedCat, one of the interesting things was, um, you know, the, the founders are also busy running a business during this time. So, you know, an acquisition uh, or in their case, a sale is a significant amount of effort. And they had to juggle that while also simultaneously continuing to run and grow their business. Um, so, so the process took a while, but the, the kind of key points where there's obviously financial due diligence, um, lower middle market companies will tend to have different quality of financials than you know, what you might expect for a company that's 10 times the size. Um, the next area is obviously tech diligence because this is a software company, as you mentioned, Patrick. Um, and it's having someone kind of go through and perform technical diligence and kind of understand feedback on development process and code base um, and, and everything else like that. And then one of the things that it also comes down to is, you know, once you've gone through kind of some of these key diligence items and spoken with customers is you, you still have to find a deal. You know, one of the things that um, pushed us past one of our sticking points in this deal uh, was frankly the use of rep and warranty insurance. Um, it was a, a a large concern on the part of uh, one of the sellers that we were able to satisfy by using rep and warranty insurance, and it, it, it's part of the reason why our deal made it across the finish line. Well, the um, the concern with that partner w was out there and and can happen. Um, had you used rep and warranty before? I mean, what was your initial reaction to it? Ultimately, we went forward with it, but Tell me about your reaction if this was your first time. If not, give me a little bit of your feelings on, on the, the concept of rep and warranty. Yeah, so this is the first um, deal I've executed with rep and warranty insurance. Um, as, as part of process, it's, you know, it's been brought up, and I kind of gone through bidding as well as diligence with this being uh, understood, but I'd never gone all the way across the finish line, and, and that is, I think, a noticeably different discussion when you're actually going through and executing rep and warranty than when you're saying, you know, roughly how much does it cost to get something that looks like this? And, and you know, ballparking is different than the real world. So that was, uh, that's kind of my background with rep and warranty. Um, for me, I was in an interesting place because as a, the buyer um, for this particular deal at this particular size, I did not have the concerns that one of the sellers did. And so um, this was really used uh, on my end primarily as a tool to help the seller, one of the sellers uh, become comfortable with the transaction. Um, and part of that was based on their prior experience um, and not necessarily even with MMA, but with, uh, with lawsuits and things from a corporate perspective. Is, uh, is they saw this as a potential area of risk, and, and um, this person was very, 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 very concerned about this. And um, rapid warranty insurance pretty much quickly mitigated the issue, um, and, and this was something that 
could have really, really been time intensive if we had not used this solution. And, I, and it, it could have derailed the deal. It was more of an accommodation on your part. And in, in part of this, and this is one of those co common questions I get is, okay, if there's a policy here, you, the buyer, are the, are the policy holder because if you suffer the loss, the insurance carrier comes to you and pays you your loss rather than requiring you to go pursue the seller and them identifying the seller. So it's more of a direct line. Uh, and the question I get all the time is, okay, well, if the buyer is the policy holder, then who pays for it? And it varies from deal to deal, and it can be one of three ways. Either the buyer pays for it, the seller pays for it, or the two sides split it. And you were willing to accommodate them and move forward on this, and they stepped in and uh, funded, funded the cost. Yeah, and I think that's an, an important thing to note is, like you said, there's a lot of options here about where, who, who pays for what in this process. And I think part of the different factor for this deal in particular is that this was not a concern that I had as the buyer. The, the policy, the, the, the concerns that were brought up um, were not ones that I reflect, that what I reflected was from my perspective were something I was concerned about. And so, um, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why it ended up that way. Now, you know, I know through our earlier conversations and through, you know, having spoken with some of my other past and present colleagues is there are other cases where the, the answer is on the opposite side of the table, where this is primarily a buyer concern and that there are some real concerns and that the rep and warranty insurance is there <laughs> to really protect the buyer. Interestingly enough here, um, it is a buy side policy, but it's primarily meeting the needs and not primarily, I mean, it really is there to meet the needs of the sellers. So I think that's an interesting um, way to look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we're being transparent about too, regardless of whose needs it's meeting, that's not necessarily going to line up with to who, who funds the, uh, the policy. You know, it's a negotiating point like everything else in a deal. Absolutely. So as you go through this experience, you had your first rep and warranty policy. Any uh, experiences you can share, good, bad, and different? Anything surprise you? Yeah, uh, one of the things that surprised me, frankly, was the, uh, the variation in responses you get um, from talking with um, different brokers um, about rep and warranty insurance. Everything from, you'll hear some people ballpark mention it's not even possible to get rep and warranty insurance on a lot of these lower middle market deals, which I know is something you and I extensively talked about that that's, you know, just not the case anymore. You'll get that response. Um, you'll get responses that uh, have differing amounts of, um, you know, cost as well as coverage. And, um, you know, you and I working together, I, I know you kind of already know where I'm going to go with this, but I was blown away by the coverage options that we got working working with you because they were far above and beyond not only what I expected, um, but having spoken with my counsel who does an extraordinary number of these lower middle market deals, as well as some other people who are in this market is no one expected to get the sort of coverage we got on the steel. Yeah, that's one of the big developments, which is why I wanted us to talk about this particular deal is that Traditionally, rep and warranty was reserved for the $100 million plus transactions. They had, in the last couple of years, come from $100 million down to $50 million at a threshold. 
Uh, the product now, due to a number of competitors coming into the marketplace, are now able to ensure deals with transaction values below $20 million. And the other item that was the big change is underwriters do not like insuring more than 30% of the deal's transaction value. Now, most of the indemnity caps we've seen out there have been between 10 and 20%. Um, there are the outliers, but it's usually be, between 10 and 20% of transaction value. So the insurance carrier's comfort level of 30% or, or less was, was rarely breached. But when you get these sub $20 million deals and you've got uh, parties out there that want to insure up to the entire transaction value, that's a, a real change. But that is now available where we are now getting involved with uh, transactions, we're insuring 75 to 100% of the, of the transaction. So that is the new development that's out there. Now, um, Rob, how likely, we, we got this through successfully and there were a lot more applications for it and, and options that you expected. How likely are you to use it again on another deal? Um, I, I would say that the, the first step in that is this is immediately now part of my toolkit. Before it was kind of reactionary. Um, the only previous times prior to this deal that rep and war that I'd really looked at rep and warranty insurance, and like you mentioned, part of it's the market I'm working in and the deal size. You know, this was something that kind of I only looked at based on seller requirements. You know, if they really said we have to have this, you know, if you have a banker or someone else who basically says this is, you know, you must include this. I kind of used it um, under those circumstances only. I would say now this is an immediate part of my toolkit. One, it can allow some risk mitigation on my side if I feel the need. And two, I think it's also a great tool um, to help overcome some buyer discomfort um, if they're worried about uh, any sort of risks to the deal and um, things that can happen that rep and warranty insurance uh, can cover. This is exactly the tool to use that. Once again, it's everything. It's about cost. So it depends on, you know, whether or not you need it and how comfortable you are. I will say for me personally, I would not hesitate to use it again as a tool to help overcome buyer objections um, or to make them feel comfortable or, or in some cases where I do feel there's a risk here to protect myself from the risk. I, I think it's a, it's a great tool that can be deployed strategically just where it particularly is you're in the position as a buyer, you can offer terms at the letter of intent with the seller where you say, hey, here you go, we were looking at traditionally there's an escrow or there's a withhold, and here are some of the risks we're gonna look at. If you wish so, here's another option where we don't have to have as big an escrow or, or any escrow, and we can ensure the deal is about, this is about the cost of it, and seller, which would you prefer? you know, having the funds in escrow or unlocking the funds, it's just going to cost a little bit more. We've got a ballpark for you. And I, I would think more often than not, the seller is going to jump at, at getting it insured. Uh, ideally, the, they'll get over Once they see the cost, they get accustomed to the cost. It's the peace of mind and, and the lack of worry uh, of, of a lot of these risks as, as the process goes on, particularly as they go through the whole diligence process with you. I think you nailed the one thing that I probably didn't highlight well enough in my response, which is this is also a way, like you mentioned, to differentiate your bid um, because it does allow you to minimize dollars in escrow. And uh, from my experience, at least, that is something that sellers actively look at. It's not just 
um, how much money it's, you know, when under what conditions they get it. And I do think this is a way when you are bidding with a company or structuring an LOI or whatever your process is, this is a way to differentiate yourself. Um, and, and I think that is invaluable outside of the risk mitigation factor. Simply unlocking the cash for the sellers is a very important thing to know. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, Rob, you've, um, with RedCat, which we closed uh, a few months ago, you've gone through by now your first board meeting with them. How are things going with them? Things are going well. Working with the sellers, we've uh, been visiting some customers. We've acquired some new customers as well during this time. And um, we are getting ready to uh, to make a, a big hire to continue to uh, push growth. So things are going well, and everyone is excited about working to kind of take RedCat towards the next level. Well, I know you're busy as success brings on more and more success for you, and I know that you've got a lot going on with this, but if there are some other folks out there that are in the same position as RedCat, where you've got owners and founders of the lower middle market company, and they want somebody who's not just going to throw money at them and put demands for growth, but somebody who really wants to partner with them, I really think they should reach out and at least uh, think about you and Broadtree. Rob, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, so you can find um, my contact information um, as well as my partners is on broadtreepartners.com. And um, I would encourage you to reach out to someone there if you're looking to meet with anyone at uh, Broadtree Partners. And uh, we'd be happy to discuss anything with you that you'd like. Well, Rob Joyce, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure working with you. And I look forward to working with you again very, very soon. Thank you, Patrick. Look forward to it as well on my side.